0: Hey everyone it's patricia and you're listening to another episode of the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. This is now episode seven. So welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the last two weeks where we had Chander and Rachel on. Thought it's always just kind of nice to have uh, people that are not just me on the podcast, um, talking for one straight hour in the room by myself. Does get, does get a little tiring. Um, so if you haven't checked those episodes out already, they're really, really good ones. Um, Chander is currently an English instructor over at Adelphi. Rachel is a Spanish teacher at a, at a high school nearby. Um, And if you want to go a little bit further back, you could even go back to episode two where I talked to Gio Esposito, who is my friend from high school, and we talked about performing at Carnegie Hall together. So um, just some really fun people that I have the great distinction and pleasure of knowing in my personal life who also have so much to share. And so hopefully you guys can check those out and they can um, and you can find something interesting in there as well for you. But this week, it's just me. Um, I figured it would be good to have a mix of things. Um, Sometimes we'll have guests, sometimes we'll have just me, sometimes we'll have We'll have a lot of guests, which is what's going to happen next week. Actually, uh, we have a two-parter coming up. Not going to say much more than that, but um, something to kind of tide you over over the next two weeks. So, um, please be subscribed so you can see when that comes out. It's going to be a two-part episode. It's going to be not just me, not just one other person. It's going to be super crazy, y'all. So, <laughs> um, so please be subscribed on wherever you listen to podcasts so you can catch that when it comes out. So, um, but anyway. Given the past two weeks and having some guests over and just being able to talk to some people, um, I've just been thinking a lot about, you know, it's month, it's a month since we started this podcast. Um, we meaning just me. (laughs) Um, and, and so a month is about a good time to just kind of reassess and think about, uh, why this thing exists and why I'm doing it. Um, you know, since the beginning, I have I feel like I've put a little bit too much thought, maybe, into the scope of the podcast. I feel like nowadays, if you're, like, making any content for the internet, it's really important, quote-unquote, to have, like, to care about your branding, um, to have some sort of niche, just because, like... Online media is so oversaturated these days. And so like if you don't carve out a space for yourself and really define what that space is, it's really easy to kind of just get lost, um, which is why I like genuinely am curious to find out who you uh, listener who you all are um, like I actually want to know who you are um, what you do why you're here like what your background is I, what your name is so, like I kind of want to know who you are Um and you can do that by leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh and you can also connect with me on social media just come and say hi I don't care I want to know who you are um, I'm 100% serious about this uh, please come by and say hi because like the more I thought about what this podcast is all about and who it was meant for right like if you look at the name of the podcast it really just just looks like you know it's for people who are learning language, or it's for people who are Asian, or it's for other teachers, or um, it's for people who are you know for whatever reason interested in traveling or working in Chinese-speaking places and connecting with Chinese-speaking people. All these things, right? Um, and the more I thought about it, the more uncomfortable I felt with the idea of like branding this podcast, like basically branding myself and feeling like I'm trying to like advertise myself as as if I have like something substantial to offer here, right? Like, you know, oh, here's this Chinese teacher who has professional expertise and is here to offer expert opinions. Like, no, that's like, like, what, what expert opinions? Pray tell, right? Um... But, you know, I like to think that what pe- what brings people back to podcasts um, or other even other forms of online media is isn't necessarily like the exceptionalism of the person. Right. Otherwise, like every, I don't know, MacArthur genius would have their own podcast. Um, it's not necessarily that the person who is you know producing the media is really all that special um, or, or deserving of a platform. Um, but it's really the fact that you're connecting with another human through the Internet but another human nonetheless, right? Which is kind of what we all seek out in life, right? And so I find the podcast as being a good medium for that. Um, and, and what's kind of beautiful is that oftentimes the reason why you find, like, these internet humans... Um, worth connecting with, uh, compelling people is because you're likely getting to know them, um, in a space where they're sharing with you something that they're passionate about. Um, you know, which is hopefully what I'm doing here. But also, if you think about all the, I don't know, like other podcasts you listen to or like a YouTube people that you watch or whatever, uh, people you follow on social media, um, you know, they're, they're all kind of showing themselves at their most passionate. Um, which is, in my opinion, the, the best side of a person. Like, hands down, that's, uh, when someone is, when someone is sharing with you what makes them happy and what makes them passionate and what they care about and, and they're like, and they're like sharing it with another person, that's like hands down where people are, are their most appealing and attractive. Um, and so, in thinking about this podcast, like yes, it's uh, it's it's very much it very much orbits around my job, <laughs> which is kind of depressing. But but it's not because um, over the six years of teaching in a classroom, I've realized that you know teaching Chinese is really has really become a core part of who I am because like so much of who I am, um, even outside of my work, emanates through that identity. Um, and it feels like much of what I experience in life, even outside of school ends up tying itself back to who I am as a teacher um, and, and all the things I care about can kind of be routed through that identity and so it just just felt like it made sense to kind of like uh, anchor this podcast on that identity, just because it's a window into so much more of, you know, the things that I think about and 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 care about in life. And so, um, you know, that sounds super pretentious <laughs> coming from, uh, you know, someone who is utterly unremarkable and the proud owner of a one-month-old little baby podcast. But the reason why I mention any of this at all is because this episode is the first in an occasional running segment called It's been a hard week, uh, which, like the name suggests, is just a space to, you know, talk about life and, you know, I don't know, the clumsy, messy parts of getting through each day. It's not really about, like, specifically about teacher stuff. Like, this isn't, like, water cooler talk where I talk about the injustices of the school system. I actually work at a really accommodating school, and I feel like a lot of the problems that I see uh, teachers, particularly public school teachers, face, I actually don't really encounter. There are other problems, like, don't you know be rest assured but um but but this isn't really kind of like let's let's talk about how flawed the education system is although you know that could be let's save that for another episode i'll say but I don't know if other people are like this. But for me, it often feels like I have more bad days or weeks than not. Um, I feel that way, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that that actually is reality. But the difference between thinking that your whole life is comprised of bad days uh, versus knowing the reality, which is that like the bad days take up more room in our memory than they really deserve, right? We have more good days than we think they do than than we think we do. Um, and it's just that the bad days just kind of like overshadow everything. Um, and so the difference between like, you know, knowing, believing this lie that like, that, that you have a lot, that, that your life is comprised of bad days or bad weeks and, and knowing the truth is, is, uh, I guess documentation, like in teacher talk. It's really like having an opportunity to sit down and reflect and give those days and experiences their space, um, and think and analyze them objectively. And then, you put them aside and behind you. Um, you know, you learn those lessons and then you kind of move on with your life. And I think um, I really needed that space this week, I realized, um, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what this series is meant to be. Like, it's it's been a hard two weeks for me. Like, I recorded the previous two episodes with Chander and Rachel about two weeks ago. So it's been like a two week break of not speaking to a mic. So and, and over those two weeks, it's been it's been a little tough. And yeah, I realized that I, I really needed this space. And if I, you know, a 26-year-old millennial who is working their first job and dealing with all the, you know, crazy things that are happening in the world right now, um, if I need this space, there's probably some of you listening who need um, a space like that as well, or at least a like-minded friend. And so if your bad weeks happen to coincide with my bad weeks, or even if they don't, I hope you find this segment at least somewhat cathartic or helpful um but i I'd, I'd love to know what you guys think and to hear about your weeks too um the good and the bad ones so anyway uh yeah the past 2 weeks have like largely i'm i'm recording this like you know 2 weeks out and things have gotten better but like i feel like the past 2 weeks have just been characterized by this really heavy brain fog, right? I don't know if you guys, when you have tough times, like, you know, when you look back on it, a lot of it is just like straight up amnesia. Like, I really don't remember a lot of what happened um, or how I felt. And so again, again, why this is this is kind of helpful and important. Um, but what I do remember is that I've been working on a lot of projects and just stuff that I have to do outside of school. Um, you know, I, I have this like side job that I'm, I'm like contracting for, for a language company and I'm working on like, you know, I'm pretending to work on like stuff for, for the Taiwan America Student Conference and like being very AWOL in that, um, doing model Congress stuff and like I have a choir thing that I've been really neglecting and so, um, and then on top of that, like I've been applying for grad school. So, uh, there's just been, and, and, and more and more of there's just a lot of stuff happening just outside of like the, the theoretical 7 30 to 3 30, that is my paid job. Um, but like, you know, with all that's going on, I just been feel like I've it's just been really hard to keep on top of everything. Like I'm usually not that upfront about things, but I've literally I think this is the first time in my life I've actually done this. Um, but like when people have come in to be like, hey, where is the thing? Um I haven't like just said the typical, you know, I've been busy. I've just literally been straight up saying to people like I've had a hard time keeping track of my my life this week, and I'm sorry. And I think that kind of honesty has been very freeing. Um, but anyway, regardless, it's been really hard to kind of keep track of everything that that I've been having to do, and I constantly felt like as if I was dropping the ball or like. Was just about to drop the ball. Like it just feel. It just felt like I had so many pieces, like like loose pieces in in my life, and no way to really kind of fit them together and contain them and move forward. So for those of you who are like into Myers Briggs, I'm really not. Like I'm really not an expert on this. So whatever I say right now is probably going to feel very misinformed and inaccurate. But um, for those of you who like know personality types, Myers Briggs, MD- MBTI, um, I also realized the past two weeks that I'm an INTP. Uh, and I think I might have been the last person to find this out because I always thought that I was just a really unhealthy and unorganized INFJ. So for those of you who don't know, I'm going to butcher this, but for those of you who don't know, INFJs, if you were to describe them, are kind of like, like their, their overarching life, I don't know, mission is like, I want to make the world a better place. And here's how I plan on making that happen. So they're like idealists, but they have like, they, they're actionable, right? While INTPs are kind of like, Um, they bury their heads inside things that they love and spend ages tinkering and picking apart things that they're interested, while at the same time ignoring, like, their real life responsibilities. Um, you know, again, I might be getting all this wrong. If you're a Myers-Briggs nerd, please feel free to correct me. Um, so I found out that, I figured out that I was an INTP the past two weeks, and I thought I was an INFJ for the longest time. I just thought I was a really, like, bad INFJ. Um, but... Anyway, I think the reason why I was so hesitant to, like, call myself an INTP or even identify with that, because INTPs are known as, like, logicians, 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 people who care about logistics or logic, I don't know, English is hard, um... Anyway, like one one personality website describes them as like the logician. And so I think when I saw that, I immediately wrote off the possibility of me being an INTP because um, because I, I didn't think this was possibly me because I know that I don't act very logically in that, like, I know what logically makes sense. right? I know the things that I should do and then I just don't do it. Right, which again, if you're hearing this and you like know Myers Briggs is actually the perfect descriptor of the INTP. Um, anyway, so I, I I mentioned that because um, I found myself really in that space this week where I was just dropping the ball or feeling like I was about to drop the ball on all the things I had to do this week um, and just really struggling to feel like my life was in order. Like, I kind of felt like I was, like, um, like you know, if life is, like, uh, there's a hand crank for the engine that moves, I just felt like I could not, like, the engine was not being cranked. Um, and then, like, when I kind of feel, like, that engine in my life slowing down, Or like the pieces I was talking about earlier, like those pieces of all the things you have to do and all the things you're responsible for, all those pieces start to loosen from each other. You know, once that stops, like things for me just start to unravel really quickly. Right. Like, you know, this engine slows down and then and then within a couple of hours just stops. Right. Or one piece comes loose and then the whole thing comes apart. And so like I distinctly felt this week like I was just like a bag of skin walking around with a bunch of like disassembled pieces rattling inside of me it's like a really really crummy feeling so um yeah that was me the past two weeks like just not being able to take care of the stuff I really needed to take care of and not feeling like i could really do anything because I just couldn't like get myself to you know get my life back together um and so when that comes to the classroom obviously I was not at my best um like and 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 I think that's a really easy thing to throw on because when when is anyone ever at their best um especially if it's something you do every day six times a day uh six classes a day um but whenever I'm not at my best teaching like you know whether it's because of these like external factors whether it's just because it's like a bad whether like the weather is just like not you know it could be for a whole bunch of reasons but whenever like things in my life start touching upon like how I behave in the classroom and how I interact with my students, it really starts like doubting myself. I really start doubting myself and questioning myself and whether or not teaching was the right thing to do. Just because, like, I don't know, guys. Teaching, I feel like many people know this, um, but you really don't understand it until you're there. But teaching is is just such a high-stakes career Um, because of the level of impact you have on students, uh, which is a great thing and also a really terrible and scary thing. Um, like, you hear all the time, I think like every person has at least one story that's kind of like, this teacher in my childhood said or did this one thing, and it scarred me irreparably forever. Um, You know, that sounds like an exaggeration, but I really feel like if you out there are listening, you probably, at least one name comes to mind, right? Um, I know that at least one name comes to mind for me, right? And And that haunts me. And this isn't, like, me you know, assuming that this is something that happens. Like, I know this happens, and I know this is applicable to me particularly, right? Because I've had more than one conversation. Like, I can tell, I can literally tell you at least one example of a student or their parent who I've talked with um, that something that I said or did really hurt them, right? Turned them off to Chinese forever or, like, traumatized them or, like, caused them to be anxious. Like, I know for a fact um, like this isn't like an irrational fear. I know for a fact that there have been cases where something offhand that I did or said in the class, like really, really hurt a kid. Um, and, and the thing is, like, you know, if you're an adult, you're just like, oh, like that happens. That's life. But like when some stuff like that happens to, to a kid, like they remember that for a long time. That haunts me. That weighs on me. And like, you know, my my instant defense mechanism when I think about that is like, you know, is is like the you know, and I, I still believe this is to say that, like, I'm not responsible for anyone's emotions and feelings other than my own. Right. But, you know, again, these are kids and kids are different. And because of that, the sense of responsibility and the sense of guilt I have is still there. Right. Like I kind of wish I'm trying to think of like all the other careers where like this would apply. Right. Like where you can't where like your, you know, every little action is put under a microscope. You're you are putting your own actions under a microscope because you're so afraid of the ramifications of those actions, right? And so, like, because if you mess up, um, there are very big consequences, right? Like, I kind of wish there was, like, malpractice insurance for teachers, (laughs) you know? Like, just because, like, you know like, you know, how doctors affect malpractice insurance? Because, like, what they do is so high stakes as well. I mean, not to say that, like, teachers and and doctors are, like, on the same level. Otherwise, be a doctor instead. But, like, kind of wish that, like, there was some room for grace in... In making those mistakes, but I really think it's really hard to have grace because, you know, the one who needs to give grace is a child, like a child having to forgive an adult, right? That's that dynamic, you know, not to say that that's impossible, but it's a it's a really difficult and crazy and challenging dynamic to really think about. And so, yeah, wish teachers had like malpractice insurance? <laughs> um yeah, but kids can be so fragile and learning to navigate it well is a part of my job that I, I'm accepting. Like, I know that that's like a, like a integral part of being a teacher, but I'm just really bad at it. Um, you know, and I, I think I'm like especially bad with dealing with. Highly anxious kids. Like I often feel like I lack empathy a lot of the time. I I feel like I like complain about kids not being able to just like handle what I dish out to them. Um, I feel like a lot of my brain space is spent just kind of like heavily sighing internally and then like feeling bad because I feel like I'm not being empathetic enough to the struggles that my own students have. Um, and the greatest, the greatest, greatest irony though of this is that like I'm a highly anxious person myself. Right, a lot of the things that my students describe to me um, about how they deal with school and work is stuff that I heavily identify with even now I definitely identified with when I was a student at least in college and I identify with it as an adult now right like I fold really quickly under just the tiniest bit of pressure um, like disproportionately to what I have to deal with bad at taking (laughs) criticism sometimes Um, I take everything really personally like I'm exactly like my students like the most anxious students that I have I am literally them Right. And so like this is just like very like big brain logic sort of thing. Very like, you know, uh, very meta. But, you know, when stuff like this happens, when I when I like, you know, even if I I, even if like even if an incident doesn't like really occur, but I like say something in class and then like two seconds later, I think about like, oh, shoot, I should not have said that. Um, Or or, like I just have a bad week and like the classroom is just not a happy place for me. There's just this, this recurring thought that I always get that like, you know, I should not be the one doing this right? Like the act of me being here in front of these kids and doing this is causing more harm than me not being here at all. But like there have been too many times when I've thought to myself in teaching Chinese that I'm doing such a bad job that the damage of like getting rid of me and the program altogether right now. Like, the the collateral damage of that happening couldn't possibly be worse than the damage that I'm doing from just being here, right? I don't know if anyone else identifies with this, but I feel this a lot. This idea that, like, you know, where I am right now, what I'm doing right now, I'm, like, messing up so hardcore that, like, you know even though people say that they need me to be here, I'm like, nah, the, the amount of messing up that I'm doing right now is not proportionate to what would happen if I'm not here. Um, and I felt that a lot with, uh, with my job, especially on those like bad days where I just feel like I'm doing really terrible and I'm just like I I'm literally harming kids I think this article a couple of episodes ago where it's I think it was titled like um it's okay new teachers to cry in your car and there's this like just this great quote that I mentioned that like um you know you feel like you are hurting kids by being as bad as you are at teaching yeah I don't know if I mean I'm sure there are a lot of other professions I really identify with that but like I feel that so hard every day and so um you know and so anyway i like i know that there is a clear logic flaw in all of this like i again i see it like i i in tv i get it like i know what i'm thinking it doesn't make a lot of sense and i'm blowing things out of proportion but um and i know why i think this way because i have like like a crippling perfectionist and i have impossibly high standards um as someone who possesses neither the natural god-given talent nor the uh, single-minded work ethic and enthusiasm for self-improvement to achieve any of those things right like you want these things in life um you're perfectionist and yet like you actually are not good enough to achieve the ideals to which you aspire um which is like (laughs) it's like a like the most sisyphean death trap ever um And so, like, I've known this for a long time about myself, and I've always struggled with it because the, 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 the conclusion that my mind jumps to is that, like, oh... People who think like this, like, people who have the same, you know, this the same line of illogic that I do are just arrogant people, right? Like, I'm this arrogant person who, like, because usually people who have high standards for themselves also have high standards for other people that no one can ever live up to. And so it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you, like, you mere mortals um, can't live up to my high standards. So, like, you know, I'm going to let you guys go. I'm going to let you guys off the hook because clearly you guys are lesser lesser human beings. But I am so much more capable. So I'm going to, like torture myself until I achieve these impossibly high standards. Um, and so, you know, I I don't know, maybe it's just because like my, my Christian guilt upbringing um, coming into the mix. But like, you know, it's like it, thinking that way, like thinking that, um, you know, the, having these impossibly high standards is just a, a side effect of being an, an arrogant uh, person really just makes you feel worse about yourself. Um, but Honestly though, I feel like having this like having these high standards and really pushing these like attain unattainably high standards and really pushing yourself to, you know, achieve them even though you know you can't. Um, I feel like this is something that's common to more people than I previously thought. So, um am I indirectly calling everyone arrogant? Yes. No, I'm kidding. Um but but I do think that like a lot of people um deal with this same thing, this idea of like or or a lot of people my age, I I kind of want to think that this is maybe a millennial thing, right? Like maybe this is a symptom of like, I don't know. I want to blame the internet for everything. I'm not that kind of person. But like, you know, we see our generation has been able to see the world in such a holistic sense. Like we have eyes on so many things that people older than us did not have access to. Maybe this is a symptom of knowing what's possible, right? And we live in this culture where even, when, even through knowing what's possible, um, we live in a culture where we see only the results and never the process. And like, and even when the process I feel like maybe this is a little different. maybe like, you know, we are also trying to be more genuine and being like showing people the process showing how imperfect it is. But even like when we do see the process, it, it is still seen in like a sanitized light. Um, and I think this is just, like, you know, a mechanical issue, right? Like, uh, th- what I'm talking about is, like, if you look on, like, online media, right? Video, v- YouTube videos or whatever, podcasts, whatever. Um, you know, those are media that help to tell the story of the process. But, like, any piece of media that is presented for a mass audience, it is edited, right? Like, this podcast is edited. Otherwise, like, this would be really insufferable to listen to. And so, in some way, the process, when it is presented, is still seen in a sanitized light the only way where you see the process in all of its ugliness and all of its realness and all of this stagnation even um is when you like are are doing life with another person up close and personal and you see all of that stuff firsthand it's really hard to kind of like we have access to see what the process looks like and it's still not accurate um so there's that and i also and also like you know the whole fact that like There's just so much, with that increased exposure to what is happening in the world, there is this increased sense of competition. Um, Like, it's no longer okay to just sit and exist and live your life because um, compared to everyone else who's doing great things in the world, that's seen as like, that's like being complacent or worse, that's like being lazy or even selfish, right? Um, You can't just like kind of just do your life because there's so much... Out there in the world that's worth caring about that requires action um and and it's really really hard to be able to justify you know, the inherent selfishness of taking time for yourself and not caring about the world outside of your own little bubble. Um, I think we try to, like, compensate with this with the term self-care, but even that has its own set of criticisms. Um, So there's that. Um, Or is it that we've just, like, internalized all the crap that other generations have said about us? Um, Like, the fact that we're lazy and entitled and, like, uh, don't understand the world. Like, we 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 hear that. We, like, you know, push back against it, but we also kind of believe it, um, or we believe that other people believe it. And since other people believe it, we work ourselves to the point where we can absolve ourselves of any of that blame or accusation, right? Like, you know, if someone's going to call us lazy, Right. You know, we know we're not lazy, but they don't believe us. And so the only way they're not going to believe us is if we like do all we can to prove to them that they cannot by any metric call us lazy because we're working three jobs and sleeping five out less than five hours and, and like have eternal student debt. Like, and the only way that like, you know, like we, we, we stack all these things up in our lives because like the only way we feel like we, we can prove that we deserve someone else's sympathy is by pushing ourselves past beyond what we can handle. Um, this idea of like having to, you know, work really hard to earn someone, you know, basic human respect. Right. I mean, like, honestly, this is not a new thing. Like people of color, immigrants, uh, oppressed folks have had to deal with this their entire lives. Like the idea of proving their worthiness. And so like, it just really, I don't know, it just really like calls back to the idea that a meritocracy is, is very toxic. And maybe this is just a symptom of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, leave your thoughts on what how you feel about that because I think there's a there's a litany of ways to, to kind of explain why I think millennials tend to be very perfectionistic and in a way that is very unhealthy and why we feel the strive to kind of strive for ideals that are way beyond ourselves. Um, it's an interesting thing. But anyway, I'm definitely guilty of that. And so one thing I've been trying to internalize in an effort to kind of... Um, to learn how to deal with it is to realize that I'm not as important as I think I am. (laughs) Um, that meaning that the world um, and therefore I can afford for me to drop the ball a few times, right? Like me, me messing up is not going to uh, bring an end to anything, right? It's not going to, it's not going to cause catastrophe. And the purpose of this, of uh, the purpose of me thinking this way, um, being a little more forgiving of myself, if you want to put it that way, um, is not necessarily to normalize dropping the ball or uh, to make, you know, it into a habit, um, but to learn just not to catastrophize things when I dropped the ball once, uh, which, you know, catastrophizing, you know, your mistakes is what causes you to not be able to pick yourself up after you've messed up. And, you know, if you don't catastrophize, if you put things into perspective, if you realize you're not as important as you think you are and that your mistakes are not that like, you know, that bad um, and are not going to break the world, uh, then you are going to be able to rev that engine back up again faster um, or you'll be able to put that, just that one piece that's come loose back into place rather than like just kind of wallowing in uh, your failure and then in that letting things fall apart more and more. I feel like that's really like the danger of this is like when you make a mistake and then you um, you just kind of let that consume yourself and then one by one things just start to fall out of place as well. So um, I, I feel like normal humans with real jobs could probably stop here and be okay with that because, um, you know, unless you really really screw up badly at your job uh most mistakes that you make are not going to be ruinous to anyone so like this logic holds water because it holds true to real life right like you know if you make a mistake at work a lot of the times um there's someone to kind of you know it's not it's not a huge deal unless you like do something really really awful but when you work with fragile people um like kids uh like sick people like you know i'm just thinking about the doctors and the psychiatrists and uh other people who deal with vulnerable people at work. Um, You know, a small screw-up has big consequences, and and that's just a reality, right? I don't think there's anything I can really do. Given my experience, um, given given what I've, you know, times in which I've said something, and I'm like, oh, that's not a big deal, and then it actually turns out to be a big deal, and I end up having to apologize for it. Um, Given my experience, I've accepted this as a reality, right? Like, I work with, teachers work with fragile, vulnerable people because kids are vulnerable, and they're sensitive, and... um, that's just something that I have to, you know, I think it's just going to take more time and maturity and experience for me to learn to put that into perspective. Like I just see teachers who are older, have more life experience, um, are, you know, just better at doing their job sometimes um, because they've done it for longer. I've only done this for six years. And, um, you know, to be able to nail down just the delivering material part is hard enough but like learning to deal with humans as a self as a self-admitted person who is not good with humans um you know it's going to be a challenge for me and i think i need to you know it's just going to come with time and and being able to you know for myself put that learning experience put that process into perspective as well so um there's that, but also like something I thought I ought to mention as well as that, like the um, high visibility of being a teacher is really nerve wracking sometimes. Um, so it's not just like what you say, but it's just the idea of just existing as is, you know, as as a highly visible person. Um, like, OK, teachers are not celebrities. Right. Uh, but it definitely always feels like you're being watched. Right. Um, obviously by the kids that are in your classroom, there are eyes on you, multiple pairs of eyes on you all throughout the day. Um, but not only that, there's like, you know, beyond that, there's their parents and a community, several hundred people that at any time know who you are um, and probably have an opinion on you. And that can easily, if you think too much about that, it can easily lend itself to like some heavily neuroticism if you're not careful. And so I've like actively I I, like I knew that was a thing I remember talking to an old high school teacher and mentioning this and she was like yeah yeah that's like definitely a thing that that you think about but like I've really worked hard to kind of tuck that in the back of my mind not think about it too much uh, not care too much because I think if I did I would really just kind of lose it so um yeah I mean yeah guys if you didn't know already like teaching (laughs) teaching beyond just like Delivering material is, uh, is is a difficult mental and psychological exercise sometimes, um, which is why bad weeks exist. But like, despite all that I'm saying, right? Honestly, if you if you know who I am, um, I feel like teaching as a career doesn't make a lot of sense just because, again, of how anxious and neurotic of a person I am and how much I overthink things and 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 have a hard time putting things in perspective. Um, but despite Everything that I'm saying. I don't think there's been a point in the past six years where I ever considered quitting teaching. Um... In the beginning, I think the reason why I thought this way was mostly fueled out of a fear that I was literally incapable of doing any other job. Like this is, uh, this is a real thing. I really thought that like I got this job, got this job by chance. Um, and I don't know if I, another chance like this will ever present itself again. And so guess I gotta teach because that's the job I have, uh, which is, hilarious and ironic considering how uniquely unqualified I was to teach in the first place. So if you want to hear that story, go to episode three, just listen to that first. Um, but, but yeah, the beginning I was just like, you know, the, the reason why I thought that was because I thought that like I could really, wasn't capable of doing any other, any other job. Um, Thankfully I'm past that, but now I feel like, you know, I, don't, I hate saying this because it sounds so cringe and it sounds so fake, but um, I feel like the reason why I, can, I can't I can really imagine a reality where I'm not teaching is because I feel like teaching has grown to become such a core part of who I am. So much of how I view the world is viewed through that lens, um, and the way that I view the world and function in it would be fundamentally different if I didn't teach um yeah, not to say that like you know having a fundamentally different view of the world as a result of having a different job would be a bad thing, but I just have a hard time really imagining it just because teaching has just become such a integral part of who I am. Um, yeah, which I don't know, this is such a cliche. It's really hard for me to articulate how I feel about teaching in a way that doesn't just like descend into meaningless platitudes and cliches, right? Like I, I usually tend to be pretty good about this. Like I usually I, I like to say that I'm like okay at like taking. You know, describing an experience or describing an emotion in a way that that is oftentimes like just kind of reduced to just very simple, like "oh, that was really special" or whatever. And to be able to describe it pretty well, I. But with teaching, whenever someone asks me about it, whatever comes out of my mouth is just kind of like you could probably put it on a bumper sticker or like a Pinterest post, and it would and it would be the exact same thing because it's just really hard to describe, right? Like this, like you know, teaching is all about seeing magic happen, blah blah blah. I think like that. If there were a meaningless platitude, a meaningless cliche that really best accurately describes the one that I go to is that teaching is magic. Um, It's not that like teaching means that you are the person causing the magic, though. I think that's really important to understand. It's not the magic in it is not being is not the teacher being the magician. Um, But the magic is being able to bring people into the same magic that you've experienced in your life before and then watching them experience it themselves for the first time, um, which doesn't have a lot to do with curriculum or instruction, but that to me is the heart and soul of what it means to teach and why i love it so much so uh i came across this video a couple of weeks ago i i think other depressed people can probably relate to what i'm saying but like when i'm having a hard time like like i said i don't remember a lot of what happens or even how i feel or what i did but i do remember all the things that i used to distract myself like you know those like netflix series that you binged during those hard times or like you know you remember those things really distinctly and so for me the past two weeks i've been distracting myself with a lot of youtube and i'm Like, way past the age of spending this many screen hours on YouTube. I I like realize that the target demographic of people who watch YouTube or like YouTubers are like literally my students' age. So I'm like way too old for this. Um, But, you know, so I'm way too old to like be a fan of a YouTuber, but I really. Really love uh, this channel called Two Set Violin. Um, again, way beyond their target demographic. I feel like the old lady in the room trying to party with the uh, the young kids. Um, but anyway, Two Set Violin. There are these two Australian dudes who are in their mid twenties, around my age. Uh, they went to conservatory for violin, and after they graduated from conservatory, they became professional orchestral musicians for a while, um, and then quit that to do YouTube full time. And so, uh, their whole shtick on YouTube is like kind of a foil to both how classical music can be seen as like inaccessible or too serious for lay people. Right. There's that perspective on classical music that like it's um, you know, that, that is like kind of uptight and closed off and privileged and like, you know, and it's not mainstream Um, or on the flip side, it can also be like weirdly cheapened or reduced to like flashy and sloppy work uh that sacrificed the integrity of the art for the sake of appealing to the masses, or like what t v producers often believe to be appealing to the masters, like they um I think they went viral for like critiquing this uh this video of this guy who played flight of the bumblebee really, really really fast and did a really, really bad job at it um and then like but but was still like like made famous because apparently people don't understand that music is an art in itself and it's not just about like being doing fancy tricks with it so um you know so so their so their approach is like you know classical music they're trying to like you're trying to find the middle here right like you know classical music ought not to be pretentious but it also has its integrity that should be respected and i think i kind of had a same approach to chinese coming in as well um like on the one hand chinese as a language can be seen as like incredibly hard and Byzantine, and, and like there's like this very elitist culture I feel with learning Chinese because usually it's like really smart people who like decide to I don't know, torture themselves with learning Chinese, um, and so it's kind of like because those standards are so high, uh, it's kind of like if you're gonna if you're gonna have the guts to uh, learn Chinese, you're you're gonna you gotta go all the way. You gotta be like you gotta be reading like Tang poetry, writing Tang poetry if you call yourself a serious Chinese scholar. So like there is the same level of accessibility in the Chinese learning world as there is in classical music. But there's also all this like Chinese made easy stuff and apps and websites and like even YouTube videos that like flashy, fun, uh, accessible, um, really capitalizing on how people a lot of people want to learn Chinese um, but don't want to do it the hard way. All of that, that ultimately also teaches you no Chinese. So like, you know, Set's whole thing about making classical music relevant while also preserving its integrity was something that like, you know, really spoke to me on a visceral level. I didn't really think that that connection would come so immediately, but it really did, which is why I probably like them so much. So, um... I think the reason why, so they do like funny videos, um, you know, again, it's way beyond, I'm like not in their target demographic, but um, I think what the reason why what they do works so well is not necessarily because they're like these classical music experts who are walking in the room or like they're like the best violinist ever. And so they deserve to have this platform, um, you know. But it's because this is something that they're genuinely passionate about. Like classical music is clearly something that they love um, and that they want to share with others. And all they're doing through their YouTube work is uh, sharing the passion with other people. And so the expert angle, quote unquote, that they have isn't necessarily born out of any like concrete expertise. Obviously, they have like conservatory training and degrees, Um, you know, it's but but the reason why they're considered experts, quote unquote, or that they're respected for what they know um, isn't expertise for the sake of expertise but just because they love the music so much um because they love the music so much they know a lot about it and sharing it comes naturally and I think I like to think that we have that in common and so uh anyway as I was uh YouTube binging the past two weeks uh found this really great clip I don't even think they posted it themselves I think it was some other person. I think it was actually, like, some, like, the, the mom of the person who was in the video. Anyway, um, the, there's this clip of them. They do live shows. And so, uh, at some point, at some show, they brought this kid, like, I think it was, like, 10 or 11 years old. brought a kid on stage during one of the shows, and they taught him how to play a little bit of violin. Like, a little demo thing, right? And so, they bring him on stage. Um, you know, Brett, one of the guys, like, gives him, or, I don't know, gives him a violin Uh, teaches him how to hold it, how to hold the bow, uh, where to pull the bow across the string, just like this kid has never, probably never touched a violin before in his life. And so he comes on stage, uh, you know, the guys are just kind of walking him through it just bit by bit, like how to hold it, how to posture yourself, all that, just like, you know, step by step. Um, And then they have him play something really simple, right? Just literally just G, A, A, G, just two notes, over and over and over again, like something really foolproof. Like it did not sound great. Obviously, this is his first, this first time touching a violin. Did not sound great. But it's two two notes, nothing impressive. Um, you know, and they just have him play that simple thing. So he plays that over and over again. First few times he plays, it's really rough and he gets better at it and he gets the hang of it. He starts playing. Um, and so the kid continues playing those two notes. And as he's playing, uh, the two guys, Brett and Eddie they start joining in with him on violin too. And the piano comes in um, and together as they're playing with the two violins, the three violins and the piano, it turns into this arrangement of Hans Zimmer's time from Inception, the movie, um, which is this incredibly beautiful and moving orchestral piece. That's like in itself, just a really incredible piece of music. If you haven't listened to it yet, just go go and listen to it now and. Um, Because as you listen to the piece, the piece like starts off very simple and then it just grows and grows into this like massive consuming work. It's just so big and so like epic um, and beautiful. And and, and it's way bigger than a kid who's holding a violin for the first time in his life. And yet this kid um, who's just playing these two notes, like uh, scratching along, he's in the midst of it all, right? He's a part of it, and he's experiencing this greatness, just like the audience is, but he's also having a part in making it. Um, And all the while, you see Brett and Eddie um, playing their own parts, but also, like, they're just being there with him, and they're, like, guiding him and telling him where to go when he's not sure and just kind of, like, not correcting him, but just kind of, like, reassuring him. Um, and so between Brett and Eddie and this kid and their their accompanist, like they're making this music together, this really great, objectively great orchestral work um, piece of music, but they're also experiencing it together. For me, this is probably the single best, most moving expression of what teaching feels like to me. Um, and I get emotional every time I see that little clip. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. I'll even like embed it in the show notes because I want y'all to see this because it's just like um, either I'm crazy or this is like literally what if, how it feels like to teach. Um, hopefully you guys will see exactly what I mean. And the thing is like what I really love about that is that it's not as if um, the two set guys are trying to prove something about their own abilities by teaching this kid, right? I feel like a lot of the times, maybe this is a, I feel like this is a Chinese person thing, but you know, anyone could do this. Like, it's not about like, if you're a teacher and you have a student, um, oftentimes you feel like I have to prove how good of a teacher I am through the work of my student, right? If my student produces good work, that is a reflection on me. If my student produces bad work, that's a poor reflection on me. So like, you know, it's just why like, I don't know, Chinese teachers tend to give kids Chinese work that is way beyond their pay grade or have them do like speech competitions that they're not qualified to do because uh, if you give a kid challenging work, it makes you look good as a teacher, right? Um, but with this example, with this video and this kid, uh, Brett and Eddie weren't doing that. They were just giving him two notes, um they weren't out to like prove like this obviously wasn't their goal but you know stick with me um it wasn't as if like they're gonna give this kid like paganini and be like look at us we're so we're such good violinists that we can teach this kid who doesn't know anything paganini within like two minutes no like give him something really simple that would sound kind of unimpressive on its own um but that's not the goal like the goal of doing this is not to have the kid playing some play something impressive so as to show off how good or effective of a teacher they were. But, um, you know, the notes that the kid was playing didn't even really need to be in tune. That wasn't what was important. Um, but what was important was being able to share that experience with that kid. And I don't know. I mean, like, if 10, 11-year-old kids, like, you know, something's stick in your memory, something's not But, like, I would hope that, like, um, that kid will remember that moment. I feel like a lot of the times... Um, Especially with music, there have been just some really memorable moments where you are part of something and you're like, wow. Um you feel like you're part of something great. Like, I don't, I don't even know if, yeah, I don't even know if two set intended this to be a teaching moment. I think it was just like, you know, a fun thing to do during a concert. Um, I don't even know if they meant to really inspire anyone by doing this, but it's really that idea of like, if you have a passion for something, you're going to naturally want to bring people into that passion and experience it with you firsthand, um, no matter where they're coming from. and, and, that is teaching to me. And that is in itself, such a powerful, powerful thing. Um, I mentioned this in my episode with uh, Geo about singing at Carnegie Hall, but I will always remember um, my high school choir teacher uh, meeting up with her after I graduated from high school for a while. And then I remember her telling me that uh, her goal was always to have us as her students experience big things, right? Like Going to Carnegie Hall and singing, even though we were like not, not Carnegie Hall material, um, singing Carmina Burana as juniors didn't doing an okay job, um, you know, doing big pieces on stage, things like that. But it was important for her to uh, to make it give us opportunities to experience something big, um, and that resonates with me so much. Again, like when it comes to music, if you have ever. Done orchestra or sung in a choir or like been a part of something like that like you can i can remember straight up like several pieces that we did in high school that will always stick with me because you like sing it and like it doesn't matter how good you are but you experience that magic with other people with your teacher who's there to be like yeah you see what i mean like this is it um this is what gets me up in the morning and I hope that it one day will be a part of what gets you up in the morning as well. Um, and and so that's what I saw in that two set video. I think it was just such a powerful moment. And if if anyone were to ask me to describe what teaching is like, I will just Show them that video. Um, but yeah, I think amidst everything that goes through my mind every day about delivering lessons or worrying about how well my students speak Chinese, whether or not they, I don't know, can take the AP exam one day or the subject test or whatever, uh, whether or not I'm doing a good job, um, or even like the mistakes that I make that hurt kids or cause them anxiety, like the mistakes I do. Um, all the doubt all the anxiety that i experience when i go home all the things all the times where i feel like i'm letting things fall apart um and i get that feeling of like these like loose pieces rattling inside my body like these bad weeks um that despite all of that this is the reason why despite all the reasons not to despite how my issues make it seem like it makes more sense for me to do something that isn't as visible isn't as high stakes isn't as stressful like This is the reason why I will always need to teach because I live for moments like that. That's it, that, though. There's also this really great sketch that Two Set does, where they uh, act out what private violin teachers are actually thinking when they teach lessons. I'll also link that in the show notes because it's really funny. Um, you know, it's like teachers who uh, who uh, the kid comes to lessons and the kid clearly didn't practice, um, which is also highly relatable on another level. Like uh, when I give my students a reading passage. By the way, students, if you're uh, if you're listening to this, have you done your 15 minutes today? But uh, I give my students a reading passage and ask them to practice reading it out loud, just 15 minutes every day. And then they come into class and they can't read anything uh, because they didn't practice. And then so we have to spend time in class going over it together. Uh, Brett and Eddie, if you're listening to this, you should know that I have used the term practice supervisor in my classes more times this year than I like to count. Um, Anyway, like I said, I'll link that video in the show notes too. Um, Anyway, thank you for sticking around and listening this week. So let me know how you feel about this segment. And I mean, hey, if. What you heard moved you or if you think that this could help or inspire someone that you love, feel free to send it their way. Send it to your perfectionistic millennial friends or an old high school teacher who uh, inspired you or, I don't know, even someone you knew from band or orchestra or choir or whatever, sports maybe, um, with whom you once, I don't know, experienced something big. In the spirit of that, I'm actually going to link a few songs that carry that feeling of bigness, being a part of something important in the show notes. If you haven't checked out the website to look for the show notes, you definitely should for this episode at least. You can find those at badchineseteacher.com I actually really love putting together the show notes for every episode. I know a lot of podcasters really hate it. I really love it um, because I do a summary, obviously, that's my least favorite part, but I also include a bunch of links uh, to things that, like, you know, we mentioned in the episode but might not have too much time to expound upon um just you know, another opportunity for me to share the magic, uh, share stuff with you that I think is cool that, and I hope that you think is cool too. So that said, thanks again for listening this week. Um, if you haven't followed us on social media already, be sure to do so. On Instagram, we are at bad Chinese teacher. On Twitter, we are at bad Chinese pod. And if you're on Facebook, you can just search up the name of this podcast, bad Chinese teacher. Um, and if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts right now, here's what I want you to do: uh, go and tap on the name of the show name. Got it scroll to the bottom and write a review letting me know how you felt about this episode as well as the other episodes you want to listen to and while you're there uh, you can leave us a five star rating that would be great too um, yeah oh also one more PSA if you are listening to this on Spotify if you're stumbling to this on, on this on another uh, on another platform but you usually listen on Spotify and you're like hmm, why hasn't Patricia updated this podcast since episode four um, there's currently two listings of, of this podcast on Spotify this is a back end glitch um, one listing has only four episodes on it and the other is the actual updated one that has this episode plus all the others um, I know there's a whole bunch of people that subscribe to that old link and I don't know and some of you are probably wondering why you know I've neglected Spotify I haven't it's just been a back-end issue so the way you can fix that you can either go to badchineseteacher.com And there's a link to the Spotify page. You can just click on that and it will bring you to the correct uh, listing for the podcast. Or you can just research, uh, research over again, uh, Bad Chinese Teacher on Spotify. You'll find two listings. Just follow the one, subscribe to the one that has all the episodes on it. So I'm very sorry about that. It should, that extra listing should go away by the end of the month. Yeah, like I said, I'm a one-man production team, y'all, and so uh, this is not my forte, but um, if there are issues that come up with that, thanks to uh, to Alan, who who pointed that out to me um, so I could kind of get that fixed up, so... Um, anyway that, that plugging and PSAing. Um, if you want to keep up with me Patricia as always you can follow me on my Instagram which is at Patricia Liu, on Twitter which I don't update it often but I'm there at Patricia SQ and as always you can read my latest writing at my blog which is Um, like I said at the beginning of this episode I really want to connect with you guys and know who you are um, and so please drop by and say hi I actually posted a little special something connected to this episode on my personal Instagram account. So you can pop over there and give it a listen and give it a like if you liked it. All right. That's all for today. Um, I'll see you guys for our very special, very secret two-part episode next week. (laughs) Enjoy your Thanksgiving if you celebrate. And I'll see you next Monday. Bye-bye.